If you're on the hunt for more amazing podcasts, I've got a recommendation for you from one of the brilliant guests we've had on Walk Tall, Poppy Jamie's Not Perfect podcast. I think we need more conversations that help carve out some space in our busy and let's face it, often quite stressful lives to pause, reflect and open our minds. And this one does exactly that. Every week, Poppy, who Forbes named as one of their 30 under 30s, invites a new guest onto her show with the aim of spreading positivity and empowering new ways of looking at the world. From mental health, physical health and soul health, the show takes a deep dive into science along with the spiritual in search of the tricks, tools and wisdom to live a better life. Recent guests on the series include Gabrielle Bernstein, Mark Groves, Angela Scanlon, Deepak Chopra and Dr. Judy Smith. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Walk Tall, a podcast brought to you by Carolina Herrera. Forging a career path is hard, and we all know that there's a confidence gap between men and women in business, especially for those just starting out. But what if you could learn from the women who have broken through, challenged stereotypes, and stepped into their power? Well, now you can. Following in the footsteps of Carolina herself, who over the last four decades has become one of the world's most distinguished fashion and beauty designers, this show will empower the next generation of women to reach their full potential in the workplace. We'll be inviting icons in their industries to share their tips, tricks, and takeaways for defining success on your terms. In other words, think of this show as your personal portable career coach. I'm Tony Tone, and in each episode, I'll tackle a different workplace challenge to help you find the confidence to walk tall. We are so excited to welcome wellness legend, Poppy Jamie to Walk Tall. Hi, Poppy. Thank you for joining us today. I have read so much about you and you have done so much in your career. I feel like you've got your fingers in so many pies. I have an amazing intro for you, but if at any point you want to stop me, please do. So Poppy is an entrepreneur, a mental health activist, and the founder of Happy Not Perfect, a full service mental wellness brand which includes social media pages, a podcast, a daily wellness app, and even a book. But her career did not begin in the wellness space. Poppy started as a presenter for MTV and ITV before founding a successful accessories line and launching the very first ever Snapchat talk show. Along the way, Poppy experienced anxiety and burnout, and she learned how to carve out happiness by working on herself and finding a balance. Something we could all do a bit more of, especially in periods of heightened stress and pressure, like at the start of your career. So Poppy, since we're here to talk about pursuing happiness in our careers, we're going to start with a question that I like to ask all guests. What did you want to be when you grow up? Well, I think initially I wanted to be a ballerina until I realized that I was Bambi on ice and had <laughs> zero rhythm. And um, and I think probably at one point he got asked to leave the ballet class. Um, so quickly that turned into wanting to be a, a Blue Peter presenter. I was obsessed with Blue Peter growing up at like five o'clock and Blue Peter for anyone who's listening and don't and hasn't heard of the show it was this half an hour TV show on BBC One and it was when we only had four television channels and in the 90s I guess and 
in every show, you'd have a bit of everything. You would kind of have a bit of cooking and I don't know, they'd teach you something about history and then some animal would come on set. <laughs> and I just remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this looks the coolest job. And all the presenters seem so happy. So surely they've done something right in their lives. So maybe if I could be a TV presenter, I would be happy just like them. And, um, and that was the beginning which of my career which I decided at the age of probably 11. And at age 19, I had managed to find a way to do that. So I was going to follow up with when did this change for you, but it didn't change. You managed to reach that goal, albeit not for Blue Peter, but you became a presenter. Right. And I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because it wasn't the form of TV presenting that I thought I wanted. It, I was a, I ended up being a TV reporter because that was the easiest way to get into the industry. So it was a kind of version of my first dream, I guess. But of course, my career then took a huge turn um, in the middle of my 20s. So you started your entertainment journey while you were in uni, is that correct? Yeah. How did that happen? Because I remember when I was in uni, I was trying to manage writing, figuring out my dissertation, attending lectures. I could not even fathom having such an intense job. How did you do that? Um, Gosh, actually quite a funny story, I guess, to how I got the job in TV. Because I got told, when I I told my parents, oh, I want to be a TV presenter, they immediately said, well that's a ridiculous dream. We don't know anyone in TV. That's just not going to happen. Be more realistic. And when anyone has ever told me be more realistic, I get so angry and I'm like, well, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to do it. (laughs) And, um, and I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't live in London. So how am I going to be able to, because at the time, obviously the industry is quite different, but at the time they really expected you to work for free. And I know that isn't so much the case anymore. So I remember thinking to myself, well, if I apply to university in London, it means means I'm going to be able to get a student loan to live in London and then I can work in television and have my student loan cover that. So I got to university and I then thought, okay, well now how do I get the TV books? I've got myself to London now at this point. And um, so I thought that I would set up this TV show for the university but I didn't even tell the university I was doing it. So I emailed all these people I found online and I used the university's email address. And I said, uh, the London School of Economics really wants to interview you for, you know, to inspire the students. <laughs> I love that. And all these people emailed back thinking it was this huge privilege that they'd been asked by this university. And of course, it was just me at the end of the email address. And um, and I got, a, I got an interview with the one of the heads of ITV at the time. So anyway, I went into the library and I tried to persuade as many students as I possibly could to come and be my pretend TV crew. And we barely knew how to hold a camera. I'd wow. never interviewed someone in my life. And anyway, so we stumble into this office. And so I start interviewing the guy. And uh, after the interview, I said, well, can I have a job? And he was so shocked that I think he felt too embarrassed to say no. So he said, uh... I guess. And so he introduced me to someone and I ended up being a runner. So I'd make teas and coffees. And then that then led into me getting the job as a TV reporter because I just did all the jobs that nobody wanted to do. And I interviewed all the people that nobody could be bothered to interview. But for me, it was just such a treat. So just, it was like my dream. And I remember I had, 
a crazy life. At the age of 19, I used to get up at 5 a.m. I would write my essays and I'd go to the TV studio at 9. Then I would write all the news bulletins underneath the screen. And then I would leave at 12, go to university to like a lecture or whatever I had to do, do the red carpets at night, edit that night, and then start the day again. And um, I mean, I, we're going to talk about burnout, but I just was so determined to do something that I got told I couldn't do, that I was willing to work all hours of the day. So this kind of leads me into my next question, because I wanted to ask you why you think you experienced burnout and anxiety. I feel like I already know why, because you've been very open and honest about like the start of your career journey and how intense things were for you at the very beginning. And then on top of that, you launched Pop and Suki with Suki Waterhouse. And then you had your Snapchat talk show, Pillow Talk. How did you manage everything? Well, I think the answer is I didn't manage everything. And um, I interviewed an amazing Harvard professor yesterday, actually. And I asked him what his favorite quote was. And um, he said, it's not so much a quote, but it's about the power of saying no. And in his 30-year career, he said, you know, the people he's met who've got sick are those who usually have a difficulty with saying no. And that was me. I said yes to everything because I was so worried that I'd miss an opportunity. I was driven by fear Um, the fear of not getting to where I wanted to go or the fear of if I said no, then somebody else might get the job and then I'd be kicked out and I'd be back to square one. I had no confidence that I was going to be okay with setting boundaries. So as a consequence, I had no boundaries. So if they wanted me to work till 4am, I was the yes girl because I, um, as I said, was, 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 was so anxious and essentially it was a sign of such low self-esteem. Deep down, I didn't think that I was worth very much. And so I felt that my validation of getting a well done at the end of the day was vital for my survival. And um, so when I moved to America, it just went on steroids. I as, as, as you mentioned, I was setting up two companies while having a TV show. I was flying from America to London every single week. And, um, and I also felt that success would make me happy. And that was the greatest mistake that I think I, well, it wasn't really a mistake because I I learned that belief at a young age, like many people do. I saw TV presenters smiling and I assumed that they had not a care in the world and I thought well if I just got there then all my problems will go away when I reach success I won't have any problems because everyone who's successful seems blissfully happy and I think culture's changed a lot because now we're seeing people who are successful saying I've got a lot of problems um but back then I believed what I read in the magazines and I believed what I saw on television I think there will be a lot of people listening, young women in particular, who believe that overworking is the only way to be successful. And I think some may hear your story and believe that, well, she's what I would call successful. And in the beginning, she did that. So I should do that. What advice would you give to them? It's a false economy. 
because I then lost probably four years of my life because I then got so sick. So yes, you could say I may have had an accelerated beginning, but more doesn't equal better quality. More doesn't equal better decisions. And um, more equaled being sick and getting my head into such a spaghetti mess that it took years to untangle. And so if we set off on our path, and it's that old parable of the the um, the tortoise and the hare. The hare runs off thinking that he's going to win the race and the tortoise wins in the end. Because if you're able to learn how to set barriers for yourself, know, have an understanding of your body, that your body, and know when your body is saying, oh, hold on a minute, we're pushing ourselves a bit too much. Don't get me wrong, push yourself. Like, understand where your limits are. Those are great learning curves. But when we do understand where our limb is, understand how we can pull back so we create sustainable work. And that, I think, is the answer, is how do we reach a sustainable pace that we can keep going where we protect our well-being and also allow ourselves space to enjoy our work? I was doing a dream job in many respects, but I hated every second of it because I had no petrol left in my engine. And I was screeching along. And then, of course, if you're not going to say no, your body does it for you. I love that. If you're not going to say no, your body does it for you. Would you say that was the reason why you leaned into the wellness space? Because I'm very familiar with the Happy Not Perfect app. And to an outsider, that was quite a pivot going from your Snapchat talk show, uh, going from Pop and Suki entertainment to wellness. Why did you decide to make that pivot? So um, mental wellness has always been a really um, important thing in terms of being very aware of when it goes wrong. Because I grew up in a household with my father who had chronic anxiety and depression. So, and my mother was a psychotherapist. So Actually, I felt even more embarrassed when I did hit rock bottom because I thought, how could this have happened to me when I had an education of how bad your mind can get when you don't look after it? You know, why did I let this happen? And um, and I we've obviously gone through some of the reasons why. So I've been very aware of mental health from a young age because I've seen how it not only affects an individual but also everybody around them um, because emotions are so contagious and science has proven that. But in 2015, when I was hosting the Snapchat show, I had millions of people watch this TV show and I used to receive thousands of messages every single week when the show went live. And I obviously couldn't open all the messages, but the, the majority I opened, I suddenly was receiving messages that were all kind of saying the same thing, which is, I'm feeling really stressed. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to deal with my stress. What do I do about the work? What do I do about it? I'm so worried about the future. What if this doesn't happen? What if that doesn't happen? I'm worried about my parents. I don't think I can talk to so-and-so. And I remember thinking to myself, where on earth do we go when we are feeling stressed and our brain just feels messy? And um, and I, I didn't know, therapy again wasn't 
I guess more it wasn't spoken about as it is now and and I I would then call my mother because she was a psychotherapist and and I thought well what about if I put my mum in an app what would that look like what about if I could turn the advice that she would give me on a daily basis into something on my phone that I could do in the middle of the night because when you're stressed and you can't sleep at 3 a.m like you need something. And so that was the reason I set up Happy Not Perfect. And I started to, um, I trained as a breathwork instructor because I started to understand that breathwork was really important to help me manage my stress. And I teamed up with a neuroscientist at UCLA, which was the, the closest university in LA at the time. And I said to him, there is so much research behind the science of happiness. We have 40 years of studies that prove the exercises you can do to help your mind feel happier and more balanced and at greater peace. But they're stuck in textbooks. How do we turn the science of happiness into something we can do every single day? Because there's one thing knowing, there's another thing doing. We can all sit here and say, we all know meditation is good for us. And we can all sit here and say, yes. I know um, going for a walk is great for me. But if we don't go for the walk or if we don't take a few minutes to take some deep breaths, it doesn't really matter about knowing what's good for us. There's no point. We all know that, you know, eating a couple of veggies is good for us. But if we don't do it, what's the point in knowing? So the whole point of Happy Not Perfect was how do we take these, these tools that we know are good for us and actually put it into an application that we can do it? Um, and uh, yeah, that's how that began. So you describe the app as a mind gym to help build those inner happiness muscles and help strengthen our emotional resilience. Why do you think some people struggle with that generally? Because I think it takes so much work to look after your mind. It is not easy. If anything, I will procrastinate. I will wake up and know that journaling in the morning, for example, journaling in the morning for me is epic. But how much do I actually do it? If I'm being truly honest, you know, and you're like wellness legend and I'm like, imposter, am I really a wellness <laughs> legend? Like, because again, it's, it's really hard work to do anything that isn't easy. And that's the thing. It's like exercise. Oh, unless you're in the routine of it, it's a real effort. And fundamentally, we are all lazy. Fundamentally, we don't want to do stuff that makes us potentially look at the bits that maybe we're afraid of. And we all have shadows. Within us, we all have things about ourselves that we would rather avoid than to actually look at and wonder why and get curious about. So mental wellness on the whole, like the idea of sitting still and meditating terrifying. We're, lo- we're actually facing our thoughts that we're trying to drown out with Netflix or shopping or, to me, working so hard. I, was, I became a workaholic because it was a form of escapism. I could worry about something and go, well, if I just do my emails, I'll focus on that and I'll then be able to shut those worries away. But the problem is our worries don't get shut away. They just come out to play when, we, when it's really unhelpful, like 3 a.m., for example, um, or in those moments when actually we're really trying to clear our mind. So our mind will catch up with us if we don't f- embrace it in bite-sized chunks. 
And so that's why I do think a daily wellness routine in whatever that looks like for you, for me, it's turned into dancing every day. And again, I think it's really important to know about wellness. It changes the whole time. Something that may have helped you two years ago may not help you anymore. And that's fine. And also you change. Like my problems five years ago are different to the things that I worry about now. And so it never stops. It's not like, and again, that was a big learning for me. I was like, well, I'm going to build an app and I'm going to be like the Buddha. But yeah, (laughs) right. You know, Um, it's just, we're just constant works in progress. And I don't think anyone has it down. I love that you've said that because I think there could be a lot of pressure to be perfect And to have everything down or appear like you have everything down, I think that translates not just into career, but also into how we manage our wellness. Because I was always of the opinion that if I'm not meditating, then my well-being isn't great. I need to do it like this, how it says, how how it says I should do it in this book, um, that wellness is not me getting a takeaway and sitting in front of the TV, when actually it could be getting a takeaway and sitting in front of the TV. It looks different for everyone. And I'm glad you said that. And you obviously mentioned being a workaholic in the past and the pressures that we face and how that affects our wellness. I want to talk to you more about perfectionism. So you were listed in Forbes 30 Under 30, alongside the likes of Cardi B, Jordan Dunn. I imagine there's a lot of pressure to always deliver. And Even though you're helping people in the wellness space, I imagine that sometimes you feel like, ah, this is a lot of pressure to help other people manage their wellness. Like, I need to be perfect at this. How do you tackle that element of perfectionism and finding a balance? I think this is a really good question because in some ways, I think the wellness world can become extremely toxic because wellness is now being marketed as just another form of perfection that we are trying to achieve. Um, I mean, I have yet to meet someone who meditates every single day. (laughs) And I work in this world. Do you know what I mean? I mean, and if you do, and you're listening, like, honestly, high five and a massive pat on the back. But in general, life is really messy. And, you know, to stick to any routine, and don't get me wrong, I love routine. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. I was away for the last two weeks and it almost stressed me out not kind of having a routine. But actually, and this is what I write about in the book, being flexible is really kind of my North Star because sometimes our routine goes totally tits up and we've got things we didn't expect. We've got to do those pieces of admin that we didn't factor into our day. Sometimes for whatever reason we had to go to we have to go to bed later than we wanted to. We've got to get up earlier and all the things that made us feel safe and healthy for whatever reason, you know, we we can't we can't stick to. And in those moments when we have the ability to be more flexible, to go with the flow of life, that has truly given me more wellness in my life than anything, any strict to-dos that I've set for myself. And at the heart of being flexible is compassion, is the ability to go, that's all right, you screwed up. Oh, that's okay. You'll just try your best next time. And we would always say that, and it sounds so cliche when I say it, because, you know, I feel like we're all saying this, and there's one thing saying, another thing doing. But When we get into the habit of treating ourselves like we would a friend, we don't put 
the standards we place on ourselves on others. And I think becoming and recognizing that those standards you are holding yourself account to is really important. And I'm someone who's really guilty of expecting 100% perfection from the entire time. And when our expectations don't meet reality, that's when we become stressed. And William James, a 20th century psychologist, came up with the happiness equation. You are as happy as you are in relation to your expectations and reality. When we expect our reality to be absolutely 100% and it ends up being 40, we have to manage that 60% gap. And usually within the gap, we then fill it with meaning. Well, that's because I'm not good enough or that's because, you know, things never turn out the way I want them to. And we fill them with these beliefs and we we find evidence to confirm these negative beliefs. But when we're flexible and we're like, oh, oh dear, no expectation, hope for the best, but whatever happens, happens we just allow ourselves so much room and so much space for curiosity and growth. So what I'm hearing is be flexible. I love that you said go with the flow of life. Go with the flow of life. Be compassionate with yourself and also be very conscious of your expectations. Is there anything else you do to help you? Because you do a lot. You have the book, you have the app, you have the podcast, (laughs) you have a lot on your plate. And when it comes to applying your teachings outside of those three things, is there anything else that you think really helps you manage your workload? So I'm a huge advocate of therapy, um, if that is available um, to you. And, you know, therapy may not look like in the form you think it is. You know, sometimes that can just be with a really good friend that can give you objective advice. But I I really do take time to reflect on how I'm feeling, why I'm feeling a certain way, and to notice when I'm triggered. Because anything that affects us in life is... It's, it, it starts with us. So thinking that we are an effect of life, we remove all our power, don't we? Because we're like, oh, life is happening to me. And so I like to, turn, whenever I get into victim mentality of like, oh, so-and-so is annoying me and so-and-so is annoying me and like this is going wrong, I think to myself, oh, I'm an effect of life. How do I become the cause of my life? So actually I try to ask myself questions like, Why? does that person annoy me? Because they're not annoying everyone. So why, why are they annoying me? What, 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 am I, what are my thoughts about this person that have, and where have they come from? How else can someone be very aware of their triggers? Because I have a very bad habit, for example, of being stressed and not knowing I'm stressed. And until my body tells me I'm stressed, I think I'm completely fine. How might someone clock the trigger before it actually affects them physically? Well, I think that physically is often the first sign. And um, something that I'm really looking into more recently is this idea of intuition and how we strengthen intuition. Because I think especially as women, we have been taught to actually not listen to our intuition at all. That's so true. And so we have that initial reaction 
to a situation or when someone asks you, oh, Tony, do you want to come and do this? We have that tummy reaction. And then we kind of ignore that and start listening to our head. And well, well, actually, it could be quite good for my career or I do have that time or guess, you know, all of these rational things, our rational brain starts to speak up and we listen to that. And I met this amazing woman the other day and um, she told me that she's really teaching her kids to listen to their intuition. And I said, oh, how, how are you doing that? And she said, well, I sit them down and I say, okay, you've got two options. Let's close our eyes. Imagine you've, you've choose, chosen the first option. How does your tummy feel? And now let's imagine the second option. How does your tummy feel? And I get them to start to verbalize how their tummy feels when they feel both, both options and then go with the option that feels the best. And that is something we have to practice because we've been so deeply conditioned to often people please, to look a certain way, sound a certain way, be a certain way, fit into a certain kind of performance role or narrative that we think is going to give us what we want. But I do believe that um, our body is, is, is our wisdom center. I love that you picked up on that. That's something I've written about before, about paying attention to your gut. Because you're right, a lot of people make fun of women's intuition, uh, like it's just some fairy tale thing, but it applies to everyone. And I read about uh, the fact that there are so many receptors in our gut, arguably some consider more in our gut than our brain. And I like that you are introducing that in your work because I speak to friends all the time who say you know what I just knew it I had a really bad feeling about it but then they just did something anyway and I think it's important particularly as women to just pay our attention pay attention to our instinct and speaking of managing work-life balance in the workplace a question I wanted to to ask you uh, in relation to that is connected to gender I think that sometimes there could be pressure for women in the workplace to overwork because they want to prove their value as women. How does one tackle that when it comes to superiors maybe giving more opportunity to men over women because of stereotypes regarding women not being as available to work as hard because of other priorities or personal priorities or women not working as hard in general? I think it goes back to something I said before where we've really got to question, does more equal more? Does more equal efficiency? And every woman I've ever spoken to, we all know that we can be just as efficient in four hours than when we try to do something eight hours. Like the brain can't concentrate for that long anyway. So I think this the idea of presentism dissolving, thank God. This idea that if you're just present on your desk that you seem to be working, virtual is hard. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's so ridiculous. So I think we've got to build our confidence in, in, in being efficient. And, you know, sometimes, and also being um, clever about the hours we work. So I just, th- this, 
this idea of nine to five to me is ludicrous because we all have different times in the day when our brain is is more engaged. I'm a morning person, so I really try to get up earlier and I get kind of my work done quite intensely. And then in the afternoon, I find it really difficult to concentrate. So again, if we can speak to let's say, I, I I don't necessarily have a boss at the moment, but if we can get into the habit of speaking to our boss to say, this is the way I work best. I'm a really good morning person, not a particularly good afternoon person, but actually I switch on again at 9 p.m. I imagine most bosses do not care how you work. They just want the work done. So I think it's having the confidence and time to get to know ourselves. We've got to be able to be unconformist, beat to you know, the rhythm of our own drum and get to know how we perform at our best. And I truly believe that when we're able to be malleable, when we're able to think outside the box, we can do things that we probably, no one could expect us to. This reminds me of two different quotes. So the first being, if you don't ask, you don't get, because you talked about the start of your career journey and literally asking for a job, a a job in presenting, and then obviously getting a job as a runner from doing that. But then you've also mentioned talking to your superiors about maybe changing your work schedule to suit you. And I've actually done that. When I worked my nine to five, I would notice that everyone would want to come in super early and leave super early, but I'm a night owl. So I went to my boss and said, would you mind if I came in two hours later, but I worked two hours later? And I'm glad I said that because he was like, uh, sure, surprised that I would really want to work late. And that worked out for me in the end because I was brave enough to ask. Another thing that I thought about when you were speaking is the quote, work smart, not hard, because it's about being productive rather than overworking. What tips would you give to some people in the workplace to be as efficient as they can be? Well, I don't think our mind can work without our body. So I saw the lionesses um, post something yesterday about, uh, they, they, they wrote a letter to the government to say there needs to be more exercise in schools. And I reposted it because I thought absolutely could not be celebrating this more. The research behind moving your body is absolutely phenomenal and especially moving your body to build confidence and and being more productive. There's a brilliant book uh, that came out last year by Caroline Williams. She uh, wrote a book called Move, and it goes through all these studies. And women um, who learned uh, kickboxing within six weeks felt more confident, more confident to ask uh, for what they wanted. Um, They felt uh, more confident in their abilities to execute on tasks. And it was all because they felt more physically strong. And so when it comes to productivity, when we just give ourselves a five minute break to go for a walk or or make um, make sure our eyes get sunlight on them in the beginning of the day, The research proves this has a phenomenal benefit on the way that we then execute our tasks in the day. So sunlight is absolutely key. And in lockdown, I think I definitely got, you know, some weeks into really in a really bad habit of getting out of bed, rolling onto Zoom and hadn't even been outside. But sunlight on the back of our eyes basically boosts our happiness hormones. It regulates our circadian rhythm. So it means not only do we get better sleep, but we also wake up feeling more refreshed. So there's loads of hacks, which are quite common sense at the end of the day. It's about remembering that we're animals, remembering that 
we need to move our bodies, we need to fuel our bodies in the right way, and, and then we can use our brains to the best of their ability. Your podcast, Not Perfect, is a treasure trove of advice and life lessons from some of the world's most fascinating people in the mental health space, physical health, and soul health space. You've heard a lot of great advice. What's the most memorable piece of advice that stands out to you to this day? This is such a good question. I tend to ask everybody, how do they define happiness? And I've never received the same answer twice. And I think that's really interesting because it's reminded me that it's so easy to fall into the trap of following someone else's version of happiness. And actually, when you truly ask yourself what makes you happy, you suddenly realize that it's probably quite different to anyone you know. And that's then the beauty of humans, right? We're all so different. And even though we all want the same things, like we all want to be loved and feel accepted and we all want to feel like we're enough because that meets our survival needs of being wanted and safe in our tribes, we do all want such different things. We want different things in relationships. We value different things. And and I think that is always really nice to hear. Um, how different everybody is. And then I think the other piece of advice I hear a lot is this idea of something we kind of touched upon is heart-centered thinking. And I think it's, again, so easy when we're busy to be trapped in head-centered thinking. And when we slow down and take a few deep breaths and you can just feel that sensation of when your body relaxes the thoughts and wisdom that then arises, what happens when you give yourself space. And, um, and I, you know, the, the most recent interview I did was, this, was, this, was with this amazing Harvard professor that has studied healing for the last 30 years and all these people that healed from illnesses that, were, that they were told were terminal. And, and his answers were just phenomenal because it was, it was all around our belief system. And that has been, I think, my greatest education in the last 10 years is under, truly understanding what do I believe about life because our brain will always confirm it. So if you believe the world is a scary place, then you will always find evidence for it. And if you believe people are out to get you, then you will always find evidence for it. But if you believe that the world has got you your back and you are going to do well. You will find evidence for that too. And I think that's been a really helpful reminder week in, week out. I like that. So to summarize the power of having an abundance mindset mm. in every way, abundance mm. in health, abundance mm. in opportunity, abundance mm. in happiness. Let's talk about your book, Happy Not Perfect. In the book, you introduce the flexible thinking method. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about this and why it's relevant for women entering the workforce? So flexible thinking was um, a method that I created when I was in the rock bottom of my burnout, when I ended up in hospital um, and realized I needed to have a complete mental spring clean because the way that I was doing life and interpreting my reality was 
only leading me to ill health and more anxiety. So flexible thinking is based on neuroscience, acceptance commitment therapy, psychology and somatic healing, actually using the body um, based on four steps. Uh, I call it the four C's. The first one is connection. This idea that connect with the body before we try to do anything else. And I, I got told this quote saying it's it's so much easier to move your way out of a problem than think your way out of a problem. So you know when you're trying to work out something, uh, whether it's a task at work or an emotional issue, and you're ruminating. And ruminating just means you're thinking about it over and over again and you're just trying to break through and it's some, it feels impossible. Well, the connection step is all about move your body before you even try to think about it. Because Einstein um, has a great quote, and I'm going to butcher it, but it says something along the lines of, the consciousness that created the problem can't solve the problem. And how do we change consciousness? Well, we change our energy. And energetic health is absolutely fascinating. Scientifically proven, we all are vibrating. But when we are stuck in fear, blame, shame, we're vibrating at a really low level. And that's why sometimes it can be impossible to think a way out of these heavy feelings. But if we do 10 jumping jacks or go for a walk or do some belly breath or even just change our posture. And Amy Cuddy did some brilliant uh, research on power poses. And yes, I watched the TED talk. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I'm sure, you know, other people may have mentioned this in other episodes, this idea of how our body, how we hold ourselves, our body is sending messages to our brain to make us think or feel differently through biofeedback. So it's been, it's been proven they sent um, kids into an exam and they said, right, do that exam hunched over. And they told another group of kids, right, complete the same exam, but with your shoulders back, head high. And the results improved just through a different body posture. And so when we're trying to make the best decisions possible, why not use our body to help us? So this idea of, you know, how is your body right now while you're listening to this podcast? Is your shoulders relaxed? Are you breathing into the belly? Like, is your, is your shoulders and heart open? I feel like now I need to open my shoulders and heart. <laughs> like, I know, like feet on the ground, like have that grounding feeling. Like just imagine your, you know, the soles of your feet on the floor. I mean, it took less than a few seconds and suddenly we, we feel a bit different. So step one is connection. Um, step two is curiosity. Get really curious about your thoughts. Often, one of the main reasons we don't go for the things we want to go for is because our thoughts are saying, oh, you don't deserve that. You couldn't do that. And um, my greatest inspiration for this is a woman called Byron Katie, and she wrote the book called The Work. And she developed these four questions, which I now live by. And they're super easy. The first one is, is this true? So, okay, I don't deserve that promotion. I'm not good enough. First question, is this true? Well, my my ego, you know, my meanie inside would say, well, I do think it's true. Can I be 100% sure it's true that I am not good enough for this role? Well, I can't be 100% sure because I think I can do it. How does this thought make me feel? Well, it makes me feel low confidence. It makes me feel insecure. It makes me feel a bit sad. Last question, who would I be without this thought? Well, without the thought that I couldn't, I'm not ready or don't deserve this job, I would, I feel confident, I'd feel at peace, I'd feel happy. And suddenly we realize through curiosity that the root of our suffering is often in our thoughts that are mainly not true. And 
that was a bit mind-blowing for me because I thought, God, how many thoughts are, are dictating my narrative, my decisions, my life? That, are, that I can't even prove are 100% true. And that moves on me on to step three, which is choice. I often think we don't have sometimes have a choice to be happy. You know, sometimes life can really throw a curveball. And in those moments, it's important to feel every single emotion. But we do have a choice to be kind, or a choice to be kind to ourselves. So to remember our choice in kindness, and we always have a choice in how we want to respond. And that's when, through really the steps of flexible thinking, it's to take us out of reacting to life and into responding to life. Reacting to life is being led by our, our emotional brain. And emotions are important, but they're not intelligent. So when we give ourselves that pause, I had this spiritual teacher once that I spent hours with her. And the only thing she would ever say to me is, pause, what a pleasure pause what a pleasure and that was the one lesson she was trying to get me to learn which is just when you pause poppy life is so much easier pause what a pleasure pause you get to access your wisdom pause you get to choose how you want to respond and the last step is commitment how do we commit to living a life based on what we actually think what we actually find important our values and doing some work around working out what your values are I think is super valuable and it's just so simple you know in the book we have exercises but genuinely like right now just take a piece of paper and say what are my values is it to have a fun life or is it to have actually more security you know you can have a bit of both but if you're deciding what job you want to take if you want a fun life then going for a job that's going to bring you lots of spontaneity is going to be up your street but if you actually thrive in stability then finding a job that's going to have a bit more of a consistency to it, that's going to make you more happier. So your values are very important than how you make decisions. So connection, curiosity, choice and commitment. Got it in one. That was amazing. Thank you so much for that. So finally, I know that there are so many factors that go into finding career happiness. You have shared so much wisdom already on this podcast. I'm blown away. But in your experience, which three are the most important? Ooh, um, I think one, to know that how you start is probably not how you're going to end. So I think sometimes we are so worried about making a decision or saying yes to something because we're like, oh, but will I want to do that in two years time? Or, oh gosh, but you know, just start. Because even if it turns out to be such a loud no, a no is just as important as a yes. So all data is important, whether you like something or whether you don't. And um, and I would say, I think it's really easy to maybe procrastinate about taking a new job or even starting because you are actually falling into perfectionist thinking. You want the perfect job in order for you to start. And I would just say, start. I mean, my first job was making tea and coffee. I mean, I definitely didn't think, I really (laughs) hoped that I wasn't going to be doing that for the rest of my life, but it was a really great job. I met people and also every step on the ladder gives you something. And it may not be the perfect job, but it may not be in, 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 in any, it may not look perfect in any shape or form, but I do think everything does have value to it. So that's what, that would be my thought first. Um, second um, would be to 
explore your limits. I think it is really important to push yourself out your comfort zone. And I think that this is a nuanced point, right? Because when you're uncomfortable, are you uncomfortable because you're pushing yourself so hard, you're going into burnout? Or are you uncomfortable that you're in a space of growth? And I think it's easy for our culture to kind of go so binary. We're like, no, don't go to burnout. That's terrible. And then we go so extreme the other way. <laughs> yeah, and we don't do anything. We don't do anything. <laughs> and we just then miss our growth area. So it's a constant, get into the habit of having constant feedback with yourself. Am I in growth or am I pushing myself hard? I'm getting sick. Am I in growth or am I getting sick? And that may change day to day, right? And then my third one, I would say, is life is about compromise. I do not think that we can have it all. But we can have different things at different times. So let's say you have one week where things are a bit calmer and you can spend more time engaging in your personal life. That's amazing. Appreciate that for what it is. And then maybe you have another week where work does, is a bit more demanding. And so we can't then give as much to the other parts of our life. I do think it is allowing different parts of our life to have a bit more attention and it's it's ever-changing. And I think moving with the ebbs and flows helps us to fight less. And when we're in conflict with ourselves, we then move into feelings of guilt and shame, or I should be doing this, or I should be doing that, knowing that nothing is often forever. And actually, I will be able to give that part of my life some more attention, maybe in a couple of weeks, or be able to actually mark out on your calendar when you can. It allows us to surrender a little bit to the ups and downs of life. So I think probably the three points encapsulate just embracing a very not perfect route through work. I love that answer. Your answers have been phenomenal. I have learned so much. I'm literally listening to you and then mentally taking notes so I can apply them in my own life. So prior to the podcast, I got on social media to ask my followers to send me some questions for you. There's one question that stood out in particular. So I'm going to grab my phone. I'll show you the question. I would love for you to answer it. The question I received was from one of my followers called Mrs. Joseph. And this is the question here. So I hate my nine to five, but I am too scared of quitting to start my own business. What to do? Well, I would say... And again, this is a nuanced answer. What is the next best the next best step for you to get where you want to go? I think often we almost set ourselves these huge steps and then we're terrified, inevitably, because that is a terrifying thing to let to say no to a nine-to-five. You know, nine-to-fives give Give us, give us a lot. They really meet our human needs. Their safety, they may give you a community, they give you a regular income, they meet our basic human needs. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a kind of a 20th century psychologist, he said in order for us to even explore self-work, we need to have our basic human needs met. We need to have our rent paid, we need to have our food paid. So our basic survival needs need to be met in order for us to kind of take risks. So 
and I say this with caution because I don't want to encourage, and you know, from someone who suffered from burnout, there is a lot of hours in the day often that go unseen. So if you're really passionate about an idea that you want to set up, what part of your day can you allocate to that idea and kind of straddle both? Because when you're setting up a business, and I've, I've, I've done it now twice, you obviously have to, the desire to do it. And setting up a business is absolutely brilliant, but also it has its own set of challenges. But the point of a business is that it also has people who want the business. So why not try and do as much user testing or whatever the business that you want to set up? Um, I think Mrs. Joseph, Missy Joseph, um, uh, I'm not sure what her business is, but or service, for example, but test the market to make sure that you've got demand. So then when you are ready to come to leave your job, you know you're moving into something that is wanted and there is a roadmap to that sustaining you financially. Because we have to be practical when we're thinking about these decisions that also trigger so many mental wellness things as well. You know, where do my core beliefs lie? Do I think I can do that? What What is actually my barrier here? Is it that I don't feel like I can do it? Or is it that I'm actually still working out the business? Or, you know, what am I what am I worried about leaving behind? What's worrying me about taking the decision in front of me? You know, all of these things are wonderful self-discovery process. So nothing has to happen overnight. And I would say, do as much as you can and use the job as a security blanket for you to then have the confidence to explore the next thing. I really love that answer. And as someone who left their nine to five to pursue uh, starting their own business, I completely agree about the practical approach and also taking calculated risks. And one thing that I think that has also helped me and, and some of my friends who have done the same is if you're really connected to the security of a nine to five, it can also help to lean into a nine to five that connects to your business. So mm. as an example, Great idea. before I worked in, in social media, I was working in gas and electricity. And then I thought, oh, I really, really want to work for myself. And I knew what I wanted to do. So I took up a nine to five in social media to then lean into working for myself. Um, but I think you're, you're so right. It's very easy to say, quit your job, start your business, but it's not always the practical yeah. thing to do. Um, yeah. And also, you, I think new businesses are a bit like newborns. You don't want to, you know, they're very fragile. So actually, if you can remove as much stress as possible to build and nurture this thing so it can walk, and then you're able to kind of, you know, take take these risks, then it just allows your life to be much more relaxed. And it means you're putting way less pressure on this new born business to be able to support you in the way that you need it to. You have been fantastic, Poppy. And before you go, I want to keep you here for a little bit longer to play a game with you. So it's quick fire game. I've got some cards in front of me. I want to ask you some questions and I would love for you to answer as many of them in two minutes as you can. Okay. Can't wait. And the clock starts now. One thing you wish you'd known at the start of your career. 
to know my boundaries. Worst career advice you've received? More is more. You feel most engaged when? When I'm working on something that really excites me. The best career advice you've received? Do something that lights you up. Your biggest career dream? Um, to have a talk show. Again. In five years, you'd like to be? Um, I would, I'm working on a new business at the moment. So in five years time, I want this business to be in everyone's homes. Your best career moment so far? Receiving a message to say that my book saved someone's life. Feeling empowered is? Confident in my ability. Your first job? Um, waitress. Biggest career risk? Moving to America without a job. Your favourite work song? Uh, oh, no, no, no. Oh, bizarrely, it's like this guy called um, Al- Alexis French. She's a pianist. Biggest motivator? Um, not fulfilling my potential. Your dream mentor is? Charlotte Tilbury. Success is? Being really passionate about what I do. You feel most drained when? Five seconds on the clock. <laughs> I feel most drained when working on something I do, I'm not interested in. Brilliant. That was <laughs> wonderful. Thank you so much, Poppy, for sharing your story with our listeners today. I feel more empowered and I hope our listeners feel more empowered to push for more happiness in their work and their lives. We cannot wait to see what you do next. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to tell your friends and leave a review and a rating. If you'd like to join us for the live recording and rep party in London to celebrate our season finale, head over to the Carolina Herrera website for the chance to attend the limited ticket event. That's carolinaherrera.com. Again, that's carolinaherrera.com. And one final thing before you go. If you're at the beginning of your career journey and you want the confidence to pursue success on your terms, then I invite you to apply for the Carolina Herrera Career Collective. Created in partnership with She Almighty, the collective is a bespoke 12-month group coaching program designed to kickstart your career, discover new opportunities, and be part of a community of like-minded women looking to do the same. Head to the She Almighty website to apply at shealmighty.com forward slash Carolina Herrera Collective. That's shealmighty.com forward slash Carolina Herrera Collective. I'm your host, Kate Ferdinand, and this is Blended. My Blended journey began when I met Rio in 2017. Rio had three children with his first wife, who unfortunately passed away at a very young age. It's been a real journey for me and I've pretty much been learning on the job. But one thing I have realised is the more we share our experiences and struggles, the less alone we feel. And that's where this podcast comes in. I'll be celebrating all different types of blended families. Every week I'll speak with experts, everyday people and celebrities in the public eye about stories of families and relationships bound by love, no matter what their circumstances are. I'm your host, Kate Ferdinand, and this is Blended. Blended.